This week, we're taking issue with the South. The Alabama Supreme Court rules that embryos are people, putting the future of IVF in the state in doubt. Nikki Haley looks to pull the upset in her home state of South Carolina in this weekend's primary. And Governor Healy punishes the city of Milton for not complying with the MBTA Communities Law. I'm Corey. I'm Matt. I'm Sue. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with a spark of revolution. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello and welcome to another episode of Taking Issue. I am Corey Smith, joined as always by my fearless team, Matt Pritchard, NBC10 Boston Political reporter and NBC 10 Boston political commentator, analyst, and my ad issue co-host, Sue O'Connell. Before we get to everything going on in the South, Alabama and the South Carolina primary, we're going to start local in the city of Milton. Just a few days after voters there voted to not comply with the MBTA communities law, the Healy administration strikes back. Uh, Milton will no longer be eligible to receive housing grants to build more housing around the MBTA station there and won't be eligible for more than $140,000 meant for seawall improvements and a new dock at Milton Landing because voters said, you know what, we're not going to comply with this MBTA communities law. Uh, Matt, you covered this before the vote, after the vote. I got to think that folks in Milton had a sense that this could ultimately happen. and, And here it is. It has happened. They've been punished. And specifically those that were voting yes to go forward with the MBTA communities law. Many of them were voting yes because they were concerned that this exact thing was going to happen. And now the governor has made good on her threat to do this. So certainly if you're a yes voter right now, you're saying, I told you so. On the no side of the coin, of course, they're hoping that they're going to be able to get back to the table with the state and come up with a new zoning plan that might fit better into what they think uh, the city of the town of Milton uh, should be responsible for when it comes to housing within the MBTA communities law. But again, this is exactly what a lot of people were expecting to see happen. And of course, all eyes now on AG Andrea Campbell to see whether or not she'll be bringing legal action against the town in the days ahead. Sue, what what are your thoughts on, on this? I think when we talked about it, we kind of thought that this didn't seem like the Healy administration or AG Campbell was gonna, you know, bluff. They were actually gonna do this. Yeah. I mean, look, at, uh, there are certainly nuances to to this vote. This is not, uh, and this result, uh, the reason and motivation why people were voting yes or no. It wasn't a complete, uh, we definitely want to comply. We definitely want to do this. Nor was it either not in my backyard. There, there are some, some nuances here um, that other folks can, can spend some time uh, delving into. But the reality is we can't keep talking about how there is a housing crisis in this state and demanding that our lawmakers do something and then have a town say we're not going to comply and not expect the hammer to come down because if andrea campbell and maura healy did not respond in the way that they promised to other cities towns and across the state would look at look at it as an option to not comply with the law so unfortunately for milton (laughs) <laughs> they're the first ones that, that are going to get the hammer on this. Again, I think because there's some uh, nuance to this situation, they might be able to get to the negotiating table and work it out. But I, I remember, Maura Healy was the state's attorney general, and she sued Trump a billion and a half times. She's not going to be afraid to enforce the law, and Andrea Campbell is, is of the same ilk. So 
Milton should not be surprised by this result. But again, sometimes when, you know, the, 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 the hammer's hanging over your head, you get to the negotiation table a lot quicker. And if there are strength, if there is strength in numbers, Milton's looking kind of weak. They are on an island in mm -hmm. this issue. In, in a letter to Milton, uh, Livable Community Secretary Ed Augustus wrote, quote, at this time, Milton is the only rapid transit community in Massachusetts that is not in compliance. If we do not all come together to build more housing, we will not be able to overcome our affordability crisis. We need every community to do their part. Now, Matt, I know when you were out there, the folks on the, the the no side of this said, you know, hey, we are not against affordable housing. We just don't think this plan in this location works for us. Did they did they seem like they were ready to take that next step? I know everyone can say, oh, we're going to come to the table and try and figure this thing out to to get into compliance. But you're real. You're, you're losing real dollars now. Do you think that may put some urgency on whatever negotiations are happening between the folks in the no camp and the city? Yeah, I think you could see an uptick in that urgency. And I also think the state wants to get this into compliance. So both sides will be uh, amenable to the idea of coming forward and trying to figure out something that works for Milton. Of course, on the no vote side of the coin, their big argument was the fact that they have the Mattapan trolley that comes through there, which is technically part of the red line. But in their mind, it only holds 38 people. That is not rapid transit, and it shouldn't be uh, classified as such under the MBTA communities law. So to them, it's not that they don't want these extra units. They just don't think that there should be that many extra units put upon them because of their own transportation hindrances uh, that they're experiencing. In fact, some no voters even said, we'd love to see the red line extended out here and have more rapid transit options for Milton. That's just not the case at this moment. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not uh, the governor, the state, the city, the town finds a way to try uh, and find that common ground, that middle ground that perhaps everyone can agree on and figure out what those units would look like in the town of Milton. So you lived in Massachusetts much longer than Matt and, and I have. Combined, um, I think, actually. Yeah, combined. combined. Um, are you surprised to see just sort of that one city, that one town buck the, the, the wants of of the state government and say, no, we're not going to do this. Or is there maybe some president, not specifically in the case of the MBTA communities law, but other, you know, legislations where some cities and towns have said, yeah. nope, not going to do it. And if so, what has been the outcome? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, and, and when the vote came down, I was, I was looking to see if there was a precedent that I could, I could easily um, look at it. And I, I haven't, I mean, I, I, I can't. And I think it's also important to note that this is a, an area that has voted voted for Maura Healy, voted for Andrea Campbell, votes as Democrats, and some of them are getting, the, the residents are, are trying to make sure that they're trying not to look like a don't tread on me town, that this is not um, about uh, disobeying the law, and it's not about for some of them uh, telling the state that they can't tell them what to do, but more to, you know, Matt's reporting more about they want to make sure they can negotiate this because that that trolley which we all forget about <laughs> that runs from milton on a regular basis except when it breaks down and then suddenly you know i think it's probably the last time it was updated might have been in the early 1900s so they do have an argument it's uh they're going to have to get to the negotiation table to do it but i know they're really trying to to many residents not make it seem like a we're defying the state even though they obviously are so according to the Boston Herald, uh, Chairman Michael Zulas, and I hope I'm not pronouncing that wrong, out in Milcom, speaking for himself, told the Herald he believes the town should fight back against the Healy administration, telling the Herald, quote, 
I find this action by the Healy Driscoll administration to be precipitous, punitive, wholly unnecessary, and contrary to their stated goal of working constructively with municipalities. As chair of the select board, again, he was speaking for himself, I will do everything I can to fight this in any future grant withholding. It is unconscionable to me that the state would harm our town by withholding funding. And and, I, and I'm just curious, when I, when I understand the, the housing grants thing, because that is sort of tied to the, to the community, the MBTA community's law. But, and you'll forgive me because I haven't been out to Milton in a long time, but is, is the seawall out there really in, in desperate yeah. need well, of, it might be. of repair? It might be, but it's it's not necessarily like, a, a, I didn't even know they had a seawall. So, um, you know, it's, it's they're on Dorchester Bay, you know, uh, certainly that area has been um, uh, in, 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 in danger due to the, the, the rising tides and the climate crisis. But, you know, I, again, Corey, it was clearly laid out that this would be what the results would be. And I think that there's, uh, if you're going to vote for an attorney general to be the governor, <laughs> when she's the governor, she's going to do what she says she's going to do and she's going to follow up. So I, I think that, that uh, this shouldn't be a surprise. And again, uh, I, I think we should all just buckle up for some, um, some hyperbole as they head to the negotiation table around it. Yeah, Matt, I guess what are you going to be looking out for as this sort of process move, moves forward? It seems like the, the no folks were were pretty engaged and, and, and were pretty sort of willing to willing to talk about this. And now it seems like, like you said, that, that urgency is going to have to be there. Yeah, I mean, it, the urgency will be there. I think they'll go to the table, they'll talk it through, they'll figure out some sort of compromise here. But I think the question is, is like, how much is the state really willing to bend when it comes to this for towns like Milton? Because whatever they do will set a precedent for other towns if they were to give up too much in that negotiation. The other thing that's worth watching is, you know, towns within the immediate MBTA, you know, those, they had to have this done by December 31st. But when it comes to those that are out on commuter rail, there's a lot of those that are still going through this process at this point. And so it'll be interesting to watch with them to see if they're also keeping close tabs on Milton, these negotiations and what precedents are set. And Corey, I'd also note, you know, this was a vote for zoning. This wasn't a vote, as we've talked about, for building. So, you know, Milton might have had a little bit more time in there had they approved the zoning, which had already been approved, by the way. Right. And this was this this new vote on it and tried to find ways to negotiate in how many um, units there were going to be and what there would be. But now they've basically drawn a line saying no to something that they had to do again, which was just the early stages. So, you know, it might have been it might have been a little too much too early, but we'll see where they end up in a couple of years. All right, uh, let's go south for our next two topics. Uh, the primary in South Carolina was supposed to be the big headline newsmaking event uh, of the week, and then Alabama basically said, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> the Supreme Court there ruled that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. That has led uh, critics to say this could have sweeping implications for fertility treatments such as IVF. Um, the decision was issued in a pair of wrongful death cases, but by three couples who had frozen embryos destroyed in an accident at a fertility clinic. Uh, if you read uh, the judge's opinion and, and sort of the lines that stick out to a lot of folks are he, he really does forthrightly make a theological argument. And I'm paraphrasing here, basically said that embryos are made in God's image and destroying those is an affront to God himself. Um, of course, this has policy implications. This has political implications, especially in an election year. Sue, I just want to get your thoughts um, 
uh, on this ruling and, and the impact that that it could ultimately have a ruling that we should say only is only you know specific to Alabama at this moment but obviously I would think that some of the anti-abortion activists and groups are looking at this and saying if, if, if this thing can potentially win perhaps we can move this into other states so uh, Corey I, and Matt I imagine that it wouldn't be surprising what my reaction is but um, what is surprising is the reaction of some very conservative anti-abortion anti-choice governors like Governor Kemp who are reacting, saying they don't understand the ruling. These are people who tried to enact the so-called heartbeat uh, rule regarding when um, a fetus would could be con- beyond uh, being able to be aborted. Uh, so my reaction, I guess, is not surprising that I think it's outrageous, but that there are some very conservative Republicans holding elected office who think that this is absolutely bonkers and this is a crazy decision. Um, I wish we lived in a world, and I've been talking to a lot of people about, about this ruling, that we could each individually determine uh, when our uh, our offspring, whether born or unborn, are, are human or people or something that we are uh, taking ownership of in terms of parenting, right? I totally understand uh, the parents' distress in this where they had hoped that these embryos would grow into their children and the destruction of them by accident is a horrific thing for them to go through. And I certainly, I understand that. And and I also know that there are lots of people who wouldn't feel that way, that they wouldn't feel the same way about them. Unfortunately, we don't live in a society that can accommodate that sort of um, gray area. Uh, and what is next gonna happen with this ruling, of course, which is already happening, is that uh, the people who seek fertility treatment in that state who are, um, overwhelmingly Republican, by the way, uh, and uh, people who seek fertility treatment are not characterized by political parties. They are going to be unable to get fertility treatment in that state. And I absolutely believe that one of the, as soon as they can come up with some sort of lawsuit to bring forward to outlaw birth control, they're going to do that as well in that state. And I think by the time we get to November, we're going to have a couple more states where you will not be able to get IVF treatment. And it is part of, I think, this really conservative Christian viewpoint, most of them Republicans, thinking that abortion, safe abortion access, I, uh, fertility treatments of any kind, and um, birth control are just not part of their American future. Um, I know at one point you're going to ask me what I think how this is going to impact the presidential campaign, but I think I think the Republican Party, again, this is yet another division within them where they, they, they are unable to come to uh, a, a, a cohesive viewpoint on things. And it's just basically thwarting any effort they have, I think, to really uh, stay uh, in power at the White House or on the state level. And I'm not really sure what the future future holds for this country if we're going to be this divided over something like this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to your point, when you've lost Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia and folks like Kellyanne Conway, that has to be a, a, a pretty extreme, you know, sort of sort of policy. And of course, as you said, they, they are looking at this uh, from a political standpoint because they know something like this. Maybe it doesn't cause Trump to lose out Alabama, but those suburban voters out there who are who are really concerned and maybe you don't have a dog in the anti-abortion, pro-abortion rights fight. But even as we've seen in the Republican Party, a candidate like Nikki Haley, who herself has a very personal story 
with IVF. It's how she had, uh, I believe, one of her children. I'm not sure uh, multiple, but I know certainly one of her children was, was was conceived via IVF. You've had you have those folks kind of caught in the middle of this from the policy side of it, from the personal side of it, but also the political side of it. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting today hearing Nikki Haley coming out and saying that she does feel that embryos are babies. I saw that top headline coming out of her comments initially to this Alabama ruling. And it'll be interesting how she sort of builds that into her message as she goes throughout this 2024 campaign, especially when you consider that in the months that have led up to this, she sort of had this sort of um, um uh, commentary where it feels like she's trying to split the middle when it comes to abortion, when it comes to these sort of issues. And so how does she sort of build these two things together? If in fact, that is how she feels about this ruling, it's really going to be fascinating to see how it's brought into the overall 2024 conversation. Joe well, Biden, you've been, out, you've, you've been out in the field, so you haven't seen that she actually said she's not, doesn't mean she disagrees with the, the ruling. Sure. So she's yeah. trying to, she's already doing what you predicted she would do which is trying to no pun intended split mm -hmm. the baby here but Matt, you, you've been out there on the trail with her and, and something that i constantly see her doing and this really gets to the to some of the criticism of nikki haley as a candidate uh she, she seems like a politician who just wants to please everybody in order to get their votes so on one hand when she talks about ivf and even when she's talked about abortion she talks about how this is a very personal thing and we need to be sensitive to people and, and make sure that they are having these private sensitive conversations between patient and doctor but yet i haven't heard her clearly say or answer the question of if you believe that then do you agree with the state stepping in and getting in the middle of that conversation and saying these are the parameters by which you have to operate um mm -hmm. and i think at some point and, and and maybe she doesn't necessarily have to do it in, in what's left of her her primary challenge to donald trump but if she were to make it to uh, a general election matchup with, with Joe Biden. I am really curious about how she would continue to answer this question when it is something that is very personal to her. So if I were if I were asking her, I would say, you know, Governor Haley, you yourself have have used I, IVF to to grow your family. Why shouldn't every American family have that right? And if you were president, would you sign a law that would be similar to this Alabama law? and say that embryos are people. I have yet to hear someone ask that to her. Uh, I, I'm hoping they do, um, but it just it, it just strikes me as, as as Sue was saying, she's sort of trying to, 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 to thread this needle of, I agree with what Alabama is saying, but oh, by the way, I think every family should have the right to, to use in vitro fertilization to grow their family. In a way, I think that's been the struggle of her campaign the entire time is that she hasn't been able to commit to one lane or the other. She's trying to split this middle instead of actually listing out specifically what she would do in these specific situations or being specifically critical of Donald Trump not doing that quick enough. That's been the struggle the entire time as she's been running here in 2024. And also, yeah, and I, let's be clear, people who use in vitro fertilization beyond you know, what we would call our so-called traditional families are also single women and lesbians and mm -hmm. the Christian, you know, that is right in the target here of who they do not want having access to IVF treatment. So there's also another part of this that is driving it. It's not just about uh, the the sanctity of life, but also who can have a family and who can't. And I just think, you know, color me cynical as always, but in, in an election year, I just I, I can't 
necessarily fathom the what's the best what's the best way to put it? I I can't fathom the the thinking that they actually some folks actually think that this this might be a winning issue when election after election after election in state after state after state when abortion rights are on the ballot Republicans have lost so maybe the Alabama legislature goes comes back and says oh this this isn't what 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 we meant this law to be and, and maybe they do change it but it really does give the Democrats ammunition um, to say, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have already said it, this is this was the, the logical outcome of the Dobbs decision. Uh, and, and that extreme, the extreme MAGA right was going to to, to come after things like like IVF and, 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 and contraception, which we're still waiting on a ruling from the Supreme Court about Mifepristone. Um, and, you know, one of the critics uh, of this decision talked about the, the real life implications of, it. you know, IVF is going to remain available in Alabama, but you're looking at embryos not being able to be stored there and having to move them to other states for storage. Well, we've already seen Republicans talk about, you know, if you help somebody cross state lines to, to access abortion care, we're going to come after you. Um, so it just opens this sort of Pandora's box from a policy perspective and also a political perspective um, to, to really make it an uphill climb in, in sort of these suburban areas of the country where you do have folks, so like Sue said, those single women, um, the, those lesbian and gay couples who, who want to use IVF to grow grow their family. And as, as we've heard a lot of pundits ask of Republicans, this doesn't seem like a very pro-family, pro-life stance for, for the Republicans to take. You know, and Corey, the other thing too is like, I don't really think, uh, uh, you know, I'm as, as cynical as you are. I don't really think that this is gonna cause a Republican to vote for a Democrat, but it may cause a Republican to stay home. And I think that's what we saw um, sometimes in the midterms. I think that's what we saw in the race for Senate in um, uh, Virginia and in Georgia, that uh, although uh, other Republicans won on the ballot, the senators didn't. And it was because Republicans blanked, blanked that, that spot on the ballot. So it's not just the idea that uh, suddenly Republicans are going to say, I'm going to vote for anybody other than a Republican, but they may just blank their ballot. Matt, any final thoughts on this? I don't think, I mean, no. I mean, I, th I think we've covered it pretty thoroughly here. It's just going to be interesting to see how this all takes shape and whether or not it moves up to the Supreme Court as well in the next uh, few years. Yeah, we'll have to see. Well, certainly, as we've been discussing, it is already having an impact on the campaign trail. Um, I don't think Donald Trump has responded to the Alabama ruling yet, uh, but we know Nikki Haley has. And of course, those two are headed for uh, a one-on-one -on -one matchup in South Carolina this Saturday. By all indications from polling, it does appear that Donald Trump is going to run away uh, with this primary. And again, just like in New Hampshire, we're going to be sort of watching the margins. Earlier this week, Nikki Haley called this 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 media press, not press conference, but a media attention to an address she was going to have. A lot of folks thinking that she was going to drop out of this race. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. The votes are going to be counted on Saturday and come Sunday. I will still be in this race. Uh, Matt, we'll start with you. A, does she have a chance in South Carolina? And if she does get trounced, as the polls may indicate, do you see her going on into Super Tuesday with visions past Super Tuesday? I, I think no. I don't think she stands a chance, a chance in South Carolina. I think she's going to get trounced in her home state, which we've been seeing take shape for the last few weeks or so. And then when it comes to whether or not she can move past Super Tuesday, 
I just don't see it, to be honest with you. And frankly, after she lost Iowa and New Hampshire, I was thinking that her chances were pretty much dead in the water at that point. Now she's going to lose her home state. She still has the money to keep buying ads and keep traveling all the way through Super Tuesday. And she has a stacked schedule going through all of those states, including Massachusetts. In fact, very close to our studios uh, for NBC10. But past that, I don't, I, I mean, she would just have to have a massive landslide victory on Super Tuesday that just shows everyone that this is a race because right now it just isn't. And she's trying to keep saying that this is not a coronation of Donald Trump and that she's staying in the race to make sure that the people have a choice. She is doing that, but we seem to be just on this path towards a Joe Biden, Donald Trump rematch. And every time we talk about it, I hear Auntie Sue in the back of my head. Don't forget about those independents and Democrats because it is an open primary, but Sue, are there enough independents and Democrats to, to help her? There, there weren't enough in, in South Carolina, though they did make things a little bit more respectable than we thought. They, yeah, and I hear in New Hampshire, you know, we thought that, that it would be. Yeah, and I hear Corey in my head saying, you can't win the Super Bowl unless you win the, <laughs> the division <laughs> title. But, um, you know, the independents and the, and the Democrats, so there aren't enough. But I will say this, that there's there's that old saying that it is it, it stinks to be ready and not be called, but it's a sin to be called and not be ready, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Trump is in a slow meltdown here or a fast meltdown, depending on how you look at it, between, you know, the the the, the major, major ruling that came out uh, against him um, last week, uh, all the millions of dollars that he owes, which he probably does not have, uh, which is accruing interest every single day. That number is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, Haley, it did, I think, out fundraise him in January. Mm-hmm. She has. And is still raising money and is still going forward. And I wouldn't be surprised if Nikki Haley's entire plan is just to be standing, just to be continued, just to continue in the race in the hope that Donald Trump just completely breaks down and melts down and for some reason is unable to continue the race. Or, like we've seen in some of the polls, if he gets convicted of something, criminally convicted, Uh, That will change the minds of some Republican voters. So I think her goal right now is um, not to 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 finish even. I mean, obviously she wants to, but her goal right now, I think, is to remain standing until that Republican convention is over, uh, at least so she can say, I I did my best and I tried. But at the best, if he falls apart, then she is she's standing there and ready to go. Yeah, but that's Sue, that, that, sorry, that it, it, it reminds me of, you know, I grew up, I grew up watching pro wrestling and, and that scenario, Sue, I can just picture that with, with, with Nikki Haley standing and all of a sudden Ron DeSantis just comes <laughs> running back from the green room because, oh, no, 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 don't forget, I'm, I'm still here too, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that's what makes this election cycle so tough, Corey, is like you're asking these questions and and they're fair questions, but there's two ways to answer them. There's the way to answer them in a traditional presidential election cycle way. And then there's the 2024 way, which is all these additional factors that Sue just mentioned. So it's it's basically which road do you want to go down? Do you want to talk about legitimate presidential politics the way we are used to seeing them? Or do you want to talk about the weird year that it is, 2024, trying to see whether or not the two front runners are actually going to be standing come the general election in November because the same questions, not exactly the same questions, but some of them exist over on the Democratic side as yeah. well. And I'll say, too, you know, Trump and the the Republican National Committee have rigged a lot of this. Um, You know, the whole Las Vegas, Nevada 
primary and caucus that we didn't even cover because it was too confusing and the fix was already in that Trump was going to get all those delegates. So there's also this mechanical stack the deck thing that Trump has done, which makes it difficult, if not impossible, for Nikki Haley to get the delegates. But also in the end, they also have to the Republicans in the states have to vote for the delegates who will then vote on the convention floor. So this process is still uh, unfolding. And and to, to Matt's point, anything can happen because we have no idea where we are right now. Yeah, yeah. who knows? Who knows? So that that primary, of course, uh, this coming Saturday. And then after that, it's on to Super Tuesday and Massachusetts gets a chance to weigh in. Of course, we're going to have full coverage on NBC in Boston and on at issue uh, ahead of, of a big, you know, what, more than a dozen states voting on Super yep. Tuesday, if I'm not I'm not mistaken. Of course, Massachusetts being one of them. Massachusetts uh, might have something to do with Yeah, that. maybe. We haven't had a reason to vote in uh, Super Tuesday since uh, Obama Clinton. Maybe. Hey, let's stay with the race real quick for some uh, taking issue tidbits. Uh, of course, the, the entire world uh, still reacting to the, the death of activist uh, Alexei Navalny in a uh, Russian prison camp. Um, we saw immediate reaction from uh, President Biden, from from Nikki Haley on, on his death. And a lot of folks waited a few days for, for, for President Trump uh, to respond to it. And, and he did so basically comparing himself to uh, Alexei Navalny. So I want to ask you, because uh, this is a question that, that, I've, that I've had, um, you know, and have struggled to understand how Republicans can say Putin is evil, Putin is a dictator, um, you know, he, he's a, a pariah on the world stage. Those same Republicans can admonish and criticize Donald Trump for empathizing with Putin and, and telling Putin that he can do whatever the hell he wants to our NATO allies, um, basically calling him a Putin sympathizer, but then say, yeah, if he is the nominee, I'm going to support him anyway. Yeah, you know, Corey, I, I, I hate to, to spend time considering conspiracy theories, you know, because as I always say, there's lots of real conspiracies that we don't pay any attention to. But at the same time, I, I can't understand what Russia, what Putin has over these Republicans who their counterparts 20 years ago would be doing exactly the opposite of what they're doing now and certainly 40 years ago. And I've, you know, grown up in a world where uh, once I became a young adult, Russia was no longer the big bad Russia that we feared um, and was hopefully going to become a business partner and a trade partner and an ally. And of course, it did not end up that way. Mitt Romney apparently was right. Um, but at the same time, um, how one cannot see what Russia and Putin are planning to do with an endless supply of soldiers. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes I think he just sits around and says, hey, let me pretend I'm going to go invade this place and see if anybody reacts. And then no one doesn't. Um, all of the things that Putin and Putin's Russia stand for are the antithesis of what um, most Americans, the majority of Mer Americans want America to be and how the Republicans, um, uh, um, the, the number of them, not even just about the Ukraine funding, but just in general, uh, speaking back, speaking out against Vladimir Putin, why they're not doing it more strongly is a, is completely confusing to me. And I have no idea why they're not doing it. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's just it's just confounding to me. And, and I know and I know, Matt, I know, you know, you've been out there on the trail covering Nikki Haley and she's been asked in a number of different contexts why she would support Donald Trump uh, were he to be the nominee. And she has really struggled to to answer this question of Donald Trump's support for Vladimir Putin. 
and then and, and criticizing him for it, but then saying, you know, oh, hey, I'm, I'm still going to support him. I believe it was Caitlin Collins on last Friday asked her if you consider, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you consider Donald Trump a Putin sympathizer, why would you support somebody who's a Putin sympathizer for president? And she went on for about 45 seconds and really didn't say the word Trump at all and, and basically just pivoted to Joe Biden. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, it's the, it's been that way the entire campaign. I mean, she's tried to ratchet up her rhetoric on the former president, but it has taken a long time to get it anywhere close to being actually critical of him. And to your point, I mean, as U.N. ambassador at one point, I mean, she has so much experience on this foreign side of the coin. She has rebuked Putin multiple times in her stump speech throughout the campaign. So, I mean, it does, it does confound logic a little bit, but I think that's sort of the political moment we're living in where a lot of people just sort of fall in line with their party at the end of the day. And she's almost kind of holding that spot open for her to do that at the end, but it definitely goes into conflict with her own experience and the sort of criticism that she's lobbed at the Kremlin over the years. Yeah, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, you know, just how, how this sort of plays out uh, on, on the national stage. Uh, any, anything else you guys are watching, Matt? I know we're recording this on a Thursday. I know you were you were on the White Stadium story yeah. today. What, just tell, talk about that. What, what What's that issue here uh, and where folks are really sort of coming down on either sides of what to do with this space? Yeah, so the long story short is that the city wants to revamp White Stadium, which has been here for a very long time. 10,000 people is what it seats. They want to retrofit it, but they want to do it in partnership with a women's professional soccer team. Essentially, the city brings 50 million to the table. Soccer team brings 30 million to the table. They revamp the stadium. They revamp parts of Franklin Park as well. And the city says that this is great for the community. It's going to be rejuvenating to this area and to Franklin Park. But Neighbors, they don't feel that way. A lot of neighbors feel that this is just going to add on a lot of traffic into the area. They think that Boston Public Schools will no longer get to use the stadium quite as much as they used to or that they do uh, currently. But I did get to speak with some neighbors who say, you know, it would revamp the area and it would revitalize it. So there are those that do see some positives here. And certainly the soccer team is the first one to say that uh, they will not be taking time away from high school kids, that they are going to fit into their lane and not cause problems uh, while they're here. But it is a contentious issue, and it's going to be one that's probably going to continue uh, for the months ahead. We saw a lawsuit come out from the uh, Emerald Necklace Conservancy yesterday, and so this is going to get tied up in the courts a little bit, but the goal is to have this done by the fall of 2026 for the start of the soccer season. So we'll wait and see whether or not that timeline holds up. Sue, can you give us a little bit of a background about, about White yeah. Stadium? Um, you know, off the top of my head, I can't, I, I know it's not been used um, on a regular basis, uh, as Matt uh, said, and it's fallen into disrepair. Uh, it is part of, uh, as, as Matt referenced, the Emerald Necklace, which is the Olmsted Parks that makes, Amer um, makes America great, makes <laughs> Massachusetts and the Boston area so great and so special. Uh, and there are also the conservator, uh, the conservator, what's their um, title? Yeah, uh, the conservatory. Yeah, the, the Emerald Conserv Necklace Conservatory. Yeah, they, they have environmental concerns and they're trying to put forward that they're not necessarily concerned about it being used or redone. They just want to make sure um that their the, the the necklace is protected and the the wildlife that's that's there is protected as well it sits in a spot where um you know the traffic issue when, when something hasn't been used regularly in boston you know the roads haven't kept up so there is a traffic concern around it as well but it is sort of that 
it, it it's to me a little bit like the Milton issue in that we all agree that we would like to have more sports facilities in Boston that people can enjoy. I think we all agree that we want women's sports uh, to, to, to get the same sort of attention that men's sports get. And I think we all agree that soccer is something that people care a lot about. Mm-hmm. Here we have this spot that hasn't been used in an area of the city that we're hoping can be revitalized, not necessarily gentrified, but you know, let's bring some some joy and some fun to this field. Um, and uh, all of these things are are conflicting at once. So I think they'll be able to negotiate it out though. All right, well, we will have to see what happens there, just like we have to see what happens with a lot of things that we talk about. <laughs> we'll still get paychecks. See, we have sh- things to do. That's, That's right. <laughs> All right, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Taking Issue. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we'll see you Sunday morning. Sue and I talked to uh, the chief of planning in the city of Boston, Arthur Jemison. We asked him about the uh, Squares and Streets initiative and, and the reforming of the BPDA to move it underneath City Hall's umbrella and the umbrella of the city budget. So that's at 11.30 a.m. Sunday morning on NBC10 Boston. But for Sue and Matt, I'm Corey. We'll talk to you next week.